0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Spooniepreneur Podcast. I'm Nicole Mier, an ex-social worker turned CEO of a virtual support agency. My passion is helping those of us living with chronic illness to see how entrepreneurship can help us pay the bills, find a sense of purpose, and build a flexible life that allows us to balance it all. On this podcast, I'm talking with business owners from all walks of life to learn how they're running their businesses. I'm also going to take you behind the scenes into how I run a six figure business while living with fibromyalgia, bipolar disorder, irritable bowel syndrome, and anxiety. If you are a spooniepreneur or thinking about starting a business, you are in the right place. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Spooniepreneur Podcast. So I had planned on chatting with you this week about marketing, but if I'm being honest, my, my heart just isn't in it. So I record these episodes a week in advance, and one of my all-time heroes died last week. So I, I quite honestly, I don't have the words to share just how much Ruth Bader Ginsburg impacted my life. Um, she understood that the best way to change was to change the law. And she spent her life championing equality for women. And when the news broke, I'm gonna be honest that I couldn't stop crying. And I, I honestly, I can't talk about it too much because um, I will just start again. Uh, for me and for so many others, Ruth was, she was really an example of what it looked like to be a powerful woman who still lived a life of integrity. And she said, women belong in all the places that decisions are being made. And it really struck me over the weekend um, just how much being in the room where it happens isn't enough. Now, before I was an entrepreneur, I was a social worker turned administrator of a social service agency. And right around the time that I turned 30, I just finished my master's degree and I was working as project manager of the agency. So basically I was the administrator's right-hand woman. And then she resigned and I was basically left doing the job of two people. (laughs) I told everyone, you know, and I was adamant that I really did not want to take her place. Then, you know, I saw the resumes that were coming through and the applicants, they did not know a blessed thing about the services that we provided. They'd never been administrators of an agency. And so while they learned the ropes, I was really going to be doing the work of two people for months and not getting paid for it. So finally, I just decided that I was going to apply for the job and no surprise, I got it. Now, it was one of those situations where the salary was based on your experience, but because I worked at the agency, I knew what the base salary was. So when the board chairman called me to offer the job to me, I was shocked when the salary offer was 10000 less than the base was set. And when I questioned him, he said, well, this is 10000 more than you're making right now, so you shouldn't be upset. Oh, so I took a deep breath and I told him that I would have to think about it and I took my lunch early. Now, I live in a really small town, so I literally drove to the corner of the Walmart parking lot under a shady tree. I parked my car and I just sobbed because I knew that if I said no, I would be doing the job of two people and making my teeny salary where I still had to work a side hustle to make ends meet. And I also knew that I actually deserved more than the base salary because I had years of experience in the agency and a master's degree in organizational leadership, which was more than anybody else had. But I was living paycheck to paycheck, guys. I had no example of what it would look like to stand up for myself. I had no clue how to even go about negotiating a higher salary. You know, if I had been a man, chances are that I would have said no to the offer and then found another job, right? But I loved the work that I was doing and I thought that I could make a difference if I stayed. So I said yes to the low offer. And then I put up with constant bullying from the board chairperson and his staff for six months who had the final say on most of my decisions. So during that time, I was belittled and questioned at every opportunity. I literally had him say, you have no clue what you're talking about to me in front of a boardroom of people. He undermined my decisions and swept major financial issues under the rug. So when I resigned because of the panic attacks I was having before any meeting, especially the ones with him, the fact that I was losing my hair due to the stress and the pain and fatigue that just wouldn't let up, this man who was the head of a mental health agency couldn't understand why I wouldn't just suck it up. I left after five years of service to this agency without even a thank you card. And then to add insult to injury, they replaced me with two people. So when I say that it's not enough for women to be in the room where the decisions are being made, it's truly because I've been in those rooms and still not been respected. I was a woman with big ideas. I was young and still smarter than most of the people in the room. So now I believe that we need to be in the rooms and have more of the money because money truly equals power. When we have more money, we will be listened to more. But I know for a lot of women, they have really strong reactions when they say this. And let me be clear. I know if you had said this to me three years ago when I was at that position quitting my job, I would have said that I didn't want to have the money because it just goes to your head. I mean, power makes you mean and who wants to be a greedy, mean person, right? And there are not many examples in the world of what it looks like to have money and show up in integrity. I mean, people wonder why women love Oprah, but part of it, at least for me, is that she has tremendous wealth and still shows up to champion other women. She has a life that most of us dream about, but she's still open about her struggles and her mistakes. You know, in other words, for those of us without a personal role model of what it looks like to be rich, powerful, and still a good person, Oprah is our tour guide. And I certainly know that not having an example of what it looks like to be a female CEO while living in integrity has been a struggle for me. Up until about three months ago, I avoided saying that I was the owner of a six-figure agency. Hell, I didn't even call myself a CEO. And that's because I was worried that standing in my power would make others feel less than. And the truth is that there is a biological reason I thought this. Now, what a lot of people might not know about me is that I went to Sarah Lawrence College, which is a small liberal arts kind of hippie school where we didn't declare majors of study. But if I had, my major would have been psychology and my minor women's studies. So as I was struggling with all of this, it made me think about how many researchers have asked big questions about how we actually learn right from wrong. So I'm going to get nerdy on you for a minute. Back in the 1950s, a psychologist named Lawrence Kohlberg came up with a groundbreaking theory of moral development. And through his research, he found that we all have an established way that we make moral decisions as we develop. So to test his theory, Kohlberg asked a group of white boys from affluent backgrounds, um, took them through this series of dilemmas and asked them these questions. And probably the most common one is one called the Heinz Dilemma, which goes like this. So Kohlberg would say, in Europe, a woman was near death, from a special kind of cancer and there was one drug that the doctors thought might save her. It was a form of radium that a druggist in the town had recently discovered. The drug was expensive to make sound familiar, but the druggist was charging 10 times what the drug cost him to make. He paid $200 for the radium and charged $2,000 for a small dose of the drug. I mean, seriously, this is happening today, right? The sick woman's husband, Hines, went to everyone he knew to borrow the money, but he could only get together about $1,000, which is half of what it cost. He told the druggist that his wife was dying and asked him to sell it cheaper or to let him pay later. But the druggist said, no, I discovered the drug and I'm going to make money from it. So Hines got desperate and broke into the man's store to steal the drug for his wife. Should the husband have done that? Oh my gosh, right? I mean, I I had to include this here because I know so many of us deal with similar situations just in trying to get the drugs and the treatments that we need for our illnesses. Um, But time after time, when Kohlberg asked this question, the subject's age and their developmental level would predict their answer. Now, for psychologists, for therapists, and even for educators, um, we can then use this information to better understand how children are navigating the world so that if they get stuck at one of these levels, we can better help them. But the big issue with this research was that Kohlberg didn't test it on women. He didn't look at people of color. He didn't factor class into his results. So it's no surprise that throughout the years, people have poked big holes into some of his theories. So this is part of the reason why his former research assistant, Carol Gilligan, conducted her own research, and she found that women place a higher emphasis on caring and being in relationship with others as they move through the world. So in other words, instead of worrying so much about right or wrong, most women are more concerned about how their actions are impacting others. So basically, when I was worried about how my relationships with others would be impacted if I started owning my role in my successful business, I was acting this out in real life. You know, it's also the reason why when I teach marketing to women, I frame it in terms of building relationships with potential clients, right? Because women navigate the world by the relationships that we have. You know, we are mothers, daughters, sisters. We are friends and coworkers and biz besties. You know, very rarely will we lead with the fact that we're CEOs or entrepreneurs. We'll call ourselves a coach, yes, but a thought leader, um, no. <laughs> and the truth is that this will only change when we show up and take messy, imperfect action. We have to be the change that we want to see in the world. We have to show up in the rooms where the decisions are made, and we have to have the money to put where our mouth is. You know, the reason why we admire Ruth Bader Ginsburg is because she showed up and took action. She didn't wait for an example of what it looked like to be a woman trying cases before the Supreme Court. She just did it. And now she's the example for millions of women. Because the more we show our daughters, our sisters, our friends, our communities, what it looks like to lead with integrity, how to have wealth and not let it change our commitment to serving others, then we will fundamentally change the world. Because we can do big, hard things If we take it one step at a time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Spooniepreneur podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends and don't forget to rate and review it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're looking to build a business that runs on word of mouth referrals, and who doesn't? head on over to www.ResilientBusinessToolkit to check out my free masterclass teaching you to build a marketing plan that drives word of mouth referrals into your inbox every month. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next week.